0: The Word of God is our guide as we navigate life. In this lesson, guest speaker Levi Mattis continues his previous lesson from Psalm 119 with verses 17 through 32 about the goodness of God's revealed Word. All this and more as we continue our year with family. I'm Philip Jackson, and this is the Married Now What? Podcast. Okay, so we're going to continue um, probably a long, drawn-out series over Psalm 119. Uh, while Philip is out of town, um, you know, a couple weeks ago, we looked at the first 16 verses of Psalm 119, Aleph and Beth, and we talked about how Aleph is, uh, it's this symbol of not just being the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet, but it's also a symbol of strength, leadership, it's representative of a father. Uh, And then also, even the way it's constructed, boasts about the gospel right here. So this top line up here, it's three separate lines that make up the letter Aleph. This top line represents God. This bottom line represents man. And they'll never intersect one another. But the only way they can become connected is through this single line that runs through. And that is a line that represents faith. And so the only way that man and God can be connected once again after sin is through faith. Beth, we looked at that. Uh, verses nine through 16, talking about how uh, Beth is, it's a picture of a house and somebody living inside of it or dwelling inside of it. So it's a literal, literally a picture of abiding. So when you take Aleph and Beth and you start reading them together, and we're reading this way because that's how Hebrew reads. When you read it, it is God dwells on earth. And so we're gonna get to see through Gimel and Daleth verses 17, all the way through 32 today that the gospel is continued to be boasted about in just the the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So just as a recap, um, like I said, verses 1 through 8 talks about God and his His strength, and it's a symbol of him as the Father. Verse 4 talks about his authority most of all, Verse says, You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. And David, the psalmist, continues to just talk about striving to be obedient and subjecting himself to the authority of the Father. And then verse 10, under the section of Beth, says, with my whole heart I seek you, let me not wander from your commandments. When he's saying, let me not wander from your commandments, what he's asking is, he's referring back to the image of dwelling or abiding in the law and the commandments of the Lord. So he's saying, don't let me wander off. Let me stay secure in my home. We lock our doors at night to stay safe. Staying in God's word, abiding in God's word is a way that we stay safe as we go about our lives. And so this is what we're going to continue looking at. Um, Some greater background just on Psalm 119 in general. Remember, it's the longest chapter in the entire Bible. Um, In fact, the chapter is longer than some of Paul's letters. It's broken up into 22 different stanzas, which are all eight verses apiece, and each stanza is representing a letter from the Hebrew alphabet. So I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to read from verses 17 through 32 so we can kick off with, with Gimel. Verse 17, deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I'm a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. So Gimel is... Where did my marker go? Gimel is a picture of charity, loving kindness, and and serving somebody who is actually... Um, in less fortune than you are. So the image for Gimel is that. Yes. So what Gimel represents is it's actually a man walking on to give charity to somebody else to show loving kindness. So when we throw it into the, the sentence of the meaning of these letters, God dwells on earth to show loving kindness. We're going to get to see something really cool in daylight and see how the gospel just continues on. But as for Gimel, with it showing loving kindness, we get to, when we have that in mind, and when we look at the way that the psalmist is writing, you can see a heart cry for generosity, for charity, for this loving kindness to be shared with us as people reading his word. So we'll read it again now with, with charity in mind. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold the wondrous things out of your law. So we'll stop there for verses 17 and 18. So when he says deal bountifully with me, this is kind of a a theme through all of Gimel. It's It's this concept of preparing somebody to be on their own. It's a concept of maturing somebody. In fact, the word in Hebrew can actually allude to weaning a child. And so... With Gimel, when, when the psalmist is saying, deal bountifully with your servant, they're asking, prepare me leave, me, leave me wanting nothing. Prepare me to be mature and to move on throughout my life because of the things that you've given me through your word. And we get to see this through even Paul's letters um, and other epistles in the New Testament, where in 1 Peter 2, we're told that we need to start our relationship with Christ drinking, pure spiritual milk. That's the language that, that Peter uses. So he's talking about being nursed on God's word until we can grow up into maturity. And then Paul says to the, uh, the Corinthians in his first letter in 1 Corinthians 3, he says that the Corinthian church ought to be behaving like people who can eat meat, but they're not. So he's saying you haven't matured up to be eating spiritual, spiritual meat. You're behaving like mere humans. And the, that's the language that Paul uses is mere humans. So David is saying, deal bountifully, leave me wanting nothing. Prepare me to move on and to be mature. Prepare me your servant. Uh, This is the literal word for servant or slave. So he is putting himself in this position of I am at your complete mercy. I I get everything I need from you. You're the only one that can sustain me. Um, Anybody with small children who's had small children in here, you know that that child is helpless. I had a conversation with somebody quite a while back that it's kind of crazy to be the pinnacle of creation, how helpless we are when we're born. But I think it's a beautiful image of the gospel where the Lord, he he shows us our helplessness to grow up. And it's not just a picture of our need for him, but it's a picture of of our faith on how we mature and we raise up disciples and other believers. And so we're getting getting to see that once again. So he says, deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. So what he's saying when he says, may I may live and keep your word is the phrase that I may live is actually talking about resurrecting. It's talking about coming from absolute nothingness, death and coming back to a full abundance of life, which is what Christ tells us. He came to give us. He came to give us life and give it to us in the fullest. Verse 18, open my eyes so I may behold wondrous things out of your law. So this request to see these wondrous things out of the law. These wondrous things are things that we actually can't comprehend on our own. And we get this a lot when we're studying scripture and we spend time in God's word. And we're like, I don't get this. I don't get this. And you may even have to step away from a passage of scripture for a week, a month, possibly even a year. And then you come back to it and the spirit's like, here, take a look at this. The spirit reveals to us the things that we need to see. And so that's what we get right here. When we behold wondrous things out of your law, the Torah is the word for law, which is the law of the priest's code. So it wasn't just reserved for the Levitical priests. It wasn't just reserved for the people serving in the temple. Anybody could actually follow and was encouraged to follow the law of the Torah because it was established to have a people, to have a lifestyle for somebody set apart for service to the Lord. And that's what all of our lives are supposed to be. We're told in the New Testament that we are called to be a royal priesthood we're called to be set apart, different, holy. That's what happened when we came into relationship with Christ, when he saved us out of our sin, is we became different from what we were. We were no longer mere humans, which is something that Paul is referencing back to. It circles back on itself, verse, verse um, sorry, verse 18, and then verses 17 and, and 20. So uh, verse 19, I'm a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. So this word sojourner is talking about a newcomer lacking any inheritance, national or civil rights. They have no legal standing in the place they're at. They don't belong there. They're, they're, just, they're passing through. And so this request of I'm a sojourner, hide not your commandments from me. This is what Paul is talking about when he says you're behaving like mere humans. Our citizenship is not here on earth. We're just we're hanging out for 80 years and then we're going to go home to be with Christ in eternity. That that is why Paul is telling them you're behaving, you're, you're drinking spiritual milk when you should be chewing on spiritual meat. You're behaving like humans. You're not maturing in your faith. And so this, this comment of, I'm a sojourner on the earth, is saying that I don't belong here. I, I shouldn't be dealing with all of this stress. I shouldn't be dealing with all of this sin. But I am, because we live in a fallen world, but I'm going to hold on to the Lord, which is the request that he makes right after he identifies himself as a sojourner. He says, hide not your commandments from me. So this request to not be have the commandments hidden from him, it's not saying like, oh, you've made it difficult to find. It's not like a memory game where it's, is the red circle over here? Is it over here? It's actually hiding something to never be found again. It's like buried treasure that no one's ever going to find. And so this request of don't hide your commandments from me because I'm a sojourner on this earth is saying, I don't know how to live where I'm at because I'm called to live according to your word. And this world is a world of darkness. So I'm not sure how I'm supposed to live unless I have your word, unless I get to study your word, unless I get to be in it. So don't hide it from me. And we know that because the Lord has given us his word, that he's already been charitable to give it to us. And so we get to see this this bold request of a servant asking for all of the rules and all of the authority that comes from our master. Then he says, my soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. So when he says, my soul is consumed with longing, this is actually a picture of being crushed and broken with a longing for something specific. In fact, in Hebrew, the word for longing, um, it's actually, it's a feminine noun. So Hebrew is gendered, unlike English, but similar to Spanish, where there are certain words and phrases that they are gendered. They're specific to men or women. And so this feminine noun is actually talking about a longing for, for intimacy with her groom, which is what we long for, to be in, in close fellowship with Jesus as the church, as his bride, when we get to the wedding feast on the other side of eternity, is we are longing for this. Um, I know we've got some new people, so for those of you who don't know, um, I'm an Air Force veteran. I did six years active duty, and in those six years, I had two deployments. One was two months Two three months after we got married and the other one was two weeks after we found out we were pregnant with our first with our first son and so when when i was on my first tour to afghanistan um, i didn't mind the people i worked with actually i thought it was pretty cool to be in afghanistan Uh, afghanistan is actually one of the most beautiful places in the world that i've ever been Uh, but you know when people are trying to kill you it kind of downplays the beauty but i was so eager to get home not because I was so desperate to get out of there, but because I so desperately just wanted to get home to my bride, I was longing to be with her. I just, I had to get home. And so when I got home, the most rewarding thing about being home was just being with my best friend again. It was having somebody to talk to, having somebody who would talk to me about things of the word who would encourage me. Um, And of course, you know, people not trying to kill you is a great thing, but uh, the, the longing here is what this brought to mind was. The, the anticipation and the eagerness that I had to come home from deployment and just to sit and have a quiet dinner with Becca. Um, just, just a hugger when I got off of the plane. That's, that's all I was looking forward to. And so this is what the psalmist is longing for. They are crushed. They are broken with a longing for the rules at all times. So recall that there's eight different words that's used throughout all of Psalm 119 to talk about God's written revelation to us. Rules is one of them. And what the word rules is talking about is a literal judgment or, or decision after a court ruling. And so it's it's saying this is law, or at least this is the law for your situation. These these are the the, par- the parameters and the things that I'm establishing that if you break these, it's a violation of these rules, these laws. And so it's actually, it's begging the Lord Let me have your rules. Let me know how to live my life according to your word. And in light of being a sojourner on the earth, it kind of brought to mind if you've ever traveled to a different country and you've been there for an extended period of time, or even if you've been used to working in your place and you get contracted out to go work somewhere else, you're not familiar with the culture, with the habits, with the language. And sometimes all you want to do is get back to the United States, go to McDonald's, and order a burger in English. That's all you want to do. And that's what this reminded me of is I am wandering around in this world and I have no idea how, like how to behave. I don't want to behave like these people. I want to behave according to your word. Teach it to me. I'm just longing to be home in a place where I can brag about you, where I can talk about the great things you're doing, which is why we share testimonies with each other. It's an opportunity to step out of a dark world that we have to go into every week and and spend time in community with other believers, spend time in life groups, or on Wednesday nights, or, or throughout the rest of the week when we get together, it's an opportunity to come together and say, hey, I know the rules. I know the way we're supposed to live, and according to God's Word, and so do you. Let's talk about that, and let's have fun with it, and that's what they're asking for. That's what the psalmist is, is requesting here, and the Lord, again, is charitable to give this to us. He's charitable in light of Gimel. He's charitable to give us that gift before we even ask for it by giving us a community of fellow believers, by giving us the body of Christ in a local body. Moving on to verse, verse 21, though, he continues on and kind of flipping the script where he's instead of saying, I'm begging for, for your charity, he identifies those who have abandoned and walked away from the Lord's charity where he says, you rebuke the insolent and the accursed ones who have wandered away from your commandments. Take from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. So when he's talking about you rebuke the insolent and the accursed ones, what he's talking about is the word for rebuke is saying it's the same way that a father corrects his sons or God corrects the nations throughout all of the Old Testament. Is It's done out of love. It's done out of compassion. It's done out of charity to bring somebody out of incorrect living and bring them into Proper living. When I have to discipline Bennett, my son, I don't always enjoy it. But I know that if I don't discipline him in this moment now, then what's going to happen is he's going to continue to live in this sin, and it's just going to spiral out of control. But if I if I rebuke him now out of love to bring him out of this bad behavior and into good conduct, then I'm doing my job as a father. We've been working with him on basic table manners but also trying to get him to understand the concept of sin and sometimes they bleed into each other so this week he actually told his grandpa don't did he say chew don't chew with food in your mouth it's a sin the bible says not to do it <laughs> and so we were we and he said the same thing to me like the next night and so we had to say well buddy there's a difference between table manners and sin now if we've established table manners in our home and you disobey mom and dad the disobeying mom and dad that's the sin but it's fun to watch his little mind work that way. But the times where I have to rebuke him for for table manners or for screaming too loud when we asked him you know, to play a little bit quieter um, or just defiant disobedience, the times where we have to correct him, it's not always, a, I don't want to, to be that firm with him at times, but I have to be. Because if I don't, I'm not rebuking him out of love as a father does. And that's what the Lord does for us whether it's in our personal lives, and our marriages, and our work relationships. You know, Philip talked um, a couple weeks ago about how um, struggles will come, contention will come when we're not walking in according to God's Word because it's the Lord putting these circumstances in our life to challenge us to grow out of that sinfulness, to, to have it refined and purified out of us through trials by fire. And so... God does rebuke the insolent and the accursed ones and those who wander from the commandments. So the the insolent and accursed ones are those who have downright just rebelled. They've become arrogant and walked away from the, the commandments of the Lord. But then those who wander from your commandments are those who have just, they've strayed off the path. So here David is identifying both those who have become arrogant, proud, rebellious against the Lord and said, forget this, I'm not walking this way. Um, deconstruction movements is is a big aspect of that. Those who have said, you know what, I, I don't think that the Bible is right, so I'm going to break it apart myself. And then we get these these crazy perspectives that people have on God's Word. But then you also have the ones that they've just strayed away. Maybe they haven't been to church consistently. They haven't prioritized godly relationships. They haven't done you know, consistent time in the Word or practiced a life of prayer. And next thing you know, it's been two years since you've cracked open a Bible or even made an effort to get to church. It's those who have wandered off the path. And so here, David is talking about both of those. But in verse 22, he makes a prayer, take away from me scorn and contempt. I've kept your testimonies. So when he says, take away this scorn and contempt, he's asking for these things, these temptations to become arrogant and to drift away, to literally be drawn out of him. He recognizes that those temptations, that that pull to arrogance, that pull to laziness, to just divert off the path of righteousness is in him. And so when he says, take away from me, he's begging the Lord, draw it out of me. Like that sin is in me, surgically remove that from me because I want to, and I've continued up to this point, to keep your commandments, to keep this law of the priest's code, um, to walk according to your word. Then he says in verse 23, even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight and they are my counselors. So again, we see this concept of our position before the Lord when he says your servant will meditate on your statutes. So we've seen this identity twice as a servant and once as a sojourner. We belong to the Lord either as a servant called to obey him or a sojourner trying to get back to him. But that's our position that we find ourselves in. But he says, even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate. So, this word for princes isn't specifically talking about royal sons or royal authority or people. It's talking about um, people of dignity, but identified as formidable foes. So, think about today when you think about the large culture, people who have a lot of dignity, a lot of esteem, people who have a lot of popularity, whether it's the media, whether it's politicians, whether it's Um, entertainment. You have people who they have definitely, you know, they, they came into the spotlight through entertainment or some other means, but now they're standing on platforms adamantly against Christianity, adamantly against the way that we live our lives. And this is where we find ourselves. We find ourselves actually fighting against people of esteem or dignity in the culture. We find ourselves even standing against influencers, whether we know them or they're calling us out directly or not, they're adamantly against the way that we live our lives. We're seeing this right now in the Dobbs decision that came out earlier this summer, um, which overturned Roe. People have become aggressively militant against the right of abortion just to be turned back to the States, not the right, but the the idea of abortion to be put back to the States and people are losing their minds over it. And they're not seeing it properly, even not even in the legal standing of it. They have become so adamant that now there are billboards across the country begging people come to California and get an abortion. People are adamantly against the way that we live our lives just because we live our lives in light when we're in a world of darkness. And so even though princes sit plotting against me, even though these politicians, these influencers, these celebrities sit plotting against me in the way that I live my life, your servant will meditate on your statutes because they are my delight and they are my counselors. So this word for meditate is actually talking about to muse over something, to study, to ponder it. Even the word complain can be used to define this word or to translate this word because when you complain about something, you just you fixate on it. You hold on to it no matter what your spouse says, like, oh yeah, I'm sorry you're dealing with that. Like, no, 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 no. This situation at work is just it's so ridiculous, you don't understand. You you hold on to it and, and you mole over it and you fixate on it and you're you're almost incapable of shifting your focus. You're so fixated on complaining about it. So instead of fixating through complaint, we're fixating and we're stuck and we're studying on God's word. And we are, we are just consumed with it. Like I said, it, it means to muse, um, which is actually through Greek and some other, some other avenues is where we get the word museum. When you go to a museum, you sit there and you stare at the Mona Lisa or you stare at whatever you're, you're looking at and you study it. You read the little bio about or the description of it and you, you learn everything you can about this picture or this display that you're looking at. You are studying it in a museum. It's the seat of muses where you sit and you study arts, sciences, history. That is what we do with God's Word. We sit here and we, we pour ourselves into it and let it fill us back up and we study it. And we let it become Our testimonies and our counsel, or the testimonies become our delight and our counselors. So talking about it being our delight, we talked about this um, in the first two sections. It becomes this thing of sport, this thing of hobby where, you know, um, if there's anything that you particularly enjoy doing, uh, you know, you, you make time for it. You carve it out. You put effort into it. You learn more than just the passive participation in it. You throw yourself into the, the rules, whether it's a, it's a sports game or it's woodworking you know, or other kind of craft or hobby or you know, video games or anything like that. You pour yourself into all of the rules, all of the methods behind it, and you become an, a, a subject matter expert on this hobby. And that's what we are supposed to be doing with God's Word. We, we should become subject matter experts in our own right on studying God's Word. Are we all going to go become PhDs in in the New Testament? No. But as husbands, as wives, as friends, as fathers, as mothers, as brothers, sisters, sons, daughters, we can pour ourselves so much into this that we can serve one another when we meet together over dinner or we meet to share testimonies with one another from what the Lord is doing throughout the week. Through through our, our quiet times or through conversations at work, we hobby in this. We enjoy it. And then he says that they are my counselors. So this is talking about when we go about life, we let God's word become our counselors. We let it inform the way that we do our decisions. We let the rules of God's word, which we have been longing after, to be the thing that we're looking for. And so the charity that God has given us in giving us, gifting us his word, is something that David is requesting again and again and again. He's acknowledging how charitable the Lord has been through this practice. Some, uh, some details on the actual letter of Gimel beyond uh, some of the things that it means. It has a value of three numerically. Um, and it also represents the... So it, it is a picture of a man walking, but it also symbolizes in the practice of running after God's command so that we can practice loving kindness ourselves. It's chasing after the Lord so that we can practice loving kindness. It, uh, with it being three, it actually represents stability. So think about a stool. A stool is not going to stand on two legs, but it can stand on at least three. It, it offers stability. And uh, the, the verbal passing on of the Torah, it's called the Mishnah, uh, is actually said to stand on three things. The Torah, which is God's word, worship, and loving kindness, which is what gimel is. So there's these three things that we stand on as we pass along through discipleship. And most of all, it's a picture of Jesus as the Redeemer, who's coming after us to show us loving kindness. So Aleph, Beth, Gimel is the father dwells on earth to show loving kindness. Now we're going to move in to Daleth, verses 25 through 32. So Daleth actually, I'm going to throw this up there. Daleth represents humility or poverty. So that's what Daleth looks like. So again, keep in mind that Hebrew reads right to left, not like English, which is left to right. And so Daleth is actually being chased after by Gimel. That's what we get to see. And the way that Daleth is supposed to be a picture of, it's actually a poor, impoverished person bent over because they're so weak. And so this poor, impoverished person is being chased after by somebody who's offering them charity. Which is the position we find ourselves in the gospel. We are poor, broken, impoverished, bent over, lost in our sin. And Jesus is chasing after us to show us loving kindness and compassion. Verse 25. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Put false ways far from me, and graciously teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. So there's this concept in Hebrew religious culture, Jewish religious culture of, it's called Bittal and Devakut, and, and they, they connect one another. So the concept of Bittal ties into Daleth. and it is talking about absolute humility. So the concept behind, behind Bittel is actually saying, I recognize that I am a human being. I recognize that I exist, that the Lord made me, but you know what? I'm nothing, I'm dirt. There's a there's a David Crowder song that came out years ago that says, "You are the antonym of me. You are divinity." Saying that we are the absolute farthest thing from what God could possibly be, and that that's where the practice of bittol starts. It's this absolute humility, but bittol is absolutely necessary to practice Devakut which is we find from John 15, abiding in the Lord. Beth, abiding, and so. In order for us to abide with the Lord, we have to start with humility. And we're told that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble and he draws near to us. And so we have to have humility. We have to know where we are at in our sin so we can accept the full grace, the full measure of the grace and the loving kindness and charity that Jesus has for us. So verse 25 starts this concept of bittol says, my soul cleaves to the dust. Give me life according to your word. So my soul cleaves to the dust is a phrase of absolute humility. It's talking about the very thing that God used to give us life. My soul is now cleaving to the dust. So the word cleave, there's a reason that God, when he gives the command for a man to leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, we see that again in Ephesians. What the word cleave is talking about is to actually Um, fix yourself to something absolutely, or even to stain it. So if you've ever stained a piece of wood or even gotten a stain on a t-shirt or something, that's not coming out. And that's what our marriages are like. That's how we're called to live in our marriages. We're called to cleave to one another. But here, what's being talked about is my soul, the very thing you gave me, Lord, cleaves to the dust. I am bound to humility and nothingness. That is what I am. So give me life according to your word. This is the same thing that we saw back in in 17 through 24 of Give Me Life. It's talking about um, reviving or restoring from death to a full abundance of life. So when we find ourselves literally bound to humility, depression, hurt, and we are down in the dirt and we, have, we feel as if we have no hope, we find life and life in the fullest in the Word of God. Verse Continuing verse 25, when it talks about, give me life according to your word, moving on through verse 27, it says, when I told of my ways, you answered me, teach me your statutes, make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. So right here, we see the psalmist use the word way or ways twice. The Hebrew word for ways is derek or Derek. And so what, what, this word is talking about, though, is the way that we just conduct ourselves in everyday life. Whether it's with our spouse, whether it's with our children, our coworkers, our friends, our parents, our siblings. It's how we conduct ourselves. And so, when the psalmist says, When I told of my ways, you answered me. There is so much more in the Hebrew to this than we get in English. So the phrase, when I told, it's not just saying, Oh yeah, you know I, I passively or I just kind of casually told you about the way I was living my life. It's actually, it's kind of similar to the the American culture of uh, word vomit, when you just can't stop talking, and you know when you just you start putting your foot in your own mouth, but you don't stop and you just you keep pouring out all of these grievances, all of these issues, and you're like, I have definitely gone too far, but. I, I can't stop myself. It's something that can't be rehearsed. There's too much to tell, and it's being told in real time to somebody else. So this is us standing before the Lord just saying, yep, I've sinned against you, and we don't stop there. We just start pouring out, this is how I've sinned against you. This is how I've sinned against you. This is how I've hurt you. This is how I've sinned against you. And it just keeps going. We just keep letting this list grow before the Lord when we meet Him in absolute humility. Mona says, you answered me. It's specifically talking about the way that God answers in ways that reveal his grace to somebody being accused. So right here, the psalmist is saying, I spilled my guts to you about all the ways I'm sinning against you, and you gave me grace instead. And so right here, sticking with our theme of of the year of the family, how can we apply this very concept right here? Because right after that, the psalmist says, teach me your statutes. Teach me how to do this. Teach me the way that you offer grace when you've been wronged so blatantly. So in our marriages, with our friends, with our siblings and our parents and and our children, how is it that when they start spilling their guts to us, when they have crossed a line, can we meet them with the same grace that the Father gives us? Because we're told in our marriages that we are to cleave to one another, to be unbroken from one another. So think about that in your guys' own lives, in your own marriages. When you have been hurt, when you do feel that you've been wronged, how can you display the gospel of charity, of loving kindness, of grace and forgiveness to your spouse when you know that you've been wronged? Think about that in your own marriages, about how to do that. And also with your children, when they have wronged you, when when your, your children are disobeying and it is driving you up a wall, learn to rebuke them in... in grace and loving kindness, because no matter what they've laid out against you in sin, you can meet them with the grace of God the Father. Verse 27, make me understand your ways, the ways of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. So again, there's this request of make me understand the way of your precepts. So it's it's this way that we walk. And it's asking that we would we would be taught these things. Make me understand. Make me know and call into mind the way that you live your life. These general precepts, these, these charges, these words, these sayings um, is what we see going back into verse 25. So there's this idea of the way that we live our lives, the way that we can walk about in a godly manner comes from the word of God. It comes from the things that we learn. Um, general sayings that we pull out of scripture general ideas that we pull out of scripture. Um, there's a handful that you probably have in your own lives that impact and influence the way that you live. Uh, some of the ones we hear consistently here in church, um, whether it's from Philip or, or pastor Michael, you know, pastor Michael consistently says, um, use your sanctified imagination. He says the Bible doesn't mean what it says. It means what it means. And so that in That influences the way that we study Scripture. Philip is always talking about um, the mac and cheese days of life or your theology is the most basic thing about you or my personal favorite, turtle on a fence post. There are these general sayings that we can pull from life that we can summarize it into a quick little blurb that helps us understand how we live our lives. In Scripture, we see these things. Do not fear. The Lord is faithful. I am with you always. These are things that we can remind ourselves of as we go about the way that we live, that we use these things to influence and and determine the way that we live our lives. So verses 25 through 27, after verse the, the first part of verse 25, talking about Bittol, verse 27 goes to Devakut. It's talking about, let me learn these things from you. Let me sit in your house. Let me sit with you, abide with you, and learn these things. And then the pattern repeats itself in verse 28. We go back to this concept of bittal. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. So again, we see the soul from verse 25 and the soul from verse 28. Same word, talking about the breath of life that God gave us. But instead of our soul cleaving to dust, it melts away for sorrow. It is literally weeping or crying from grief and heaviness. Again, we are in absolute humility before the Lord. But then the request comes again, rather than give me life according to your word, it's strengthen me according to your word. It, the word for this phrase strengthen me according to your word is saying fix my feet, give me a firm foundation, establish me not to fall over. Um, I know I would I said it a couple weeks ago that after the hurricane hit, um, in Florida in the panhandle of Florida a few years ago, the air force base there was wiped out. So the air force rebuilt there, but what they did is they built this huge square frame, that went all the way into the ground. And that's how they're structuring all their buildings to where when this past hurricane, Hurricane Ian was threatening the panhandle, the base was actually saying, let people bunker down in this new building. It's not going to fall over. That's this idea of a firm foundation of just being fixated, rooted, grounded in God's word. It's not moving no matter what comes our way. So it's this request, moving out of humility of our souls melt away for sorrow to strengthen me according to your word, established me. And then we move back into Devakut. Verses 29 through 32. Put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. I've chosen the way of faithfulness. Set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord, and let me not be put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. So verse 29 saying, I've put false ways far from me. Again, this this idea of ways is that Hebrew word direct, where it's talking about just the way that we live our lives. But this put false ways far from me, This false way is a way of deception. It it fools us. It it doesn't work. It's flawed. And when it says, take it from me, again, it's asking the Lord to draw out of me. I know that it's in there. I need you to pull it out of me because I'm not going to give it up on my own. We were watching The Amazing Race um, a few nights ago. And this current season, there's this gal on there that um, she's all about manifesting your own universal energy I mean, she, you look at her and she's kind of a trip, but okay. I see people shaking their heads. They've watched this and she is, she's kind of annoying, but she's like, manifest your own energy. And when like her husband is off doing a challenge, she'll literally sit off on the corner, she'll meditate. She's like, I'm sending you positive vibes, babe, feel it. And then he'll do the same thing when she's in a challenge. But here's, here's the most interesting thing about that. Every single time it was her turn to do a roadblock. Um, or to do a challenge she would walk up to it had no idea what it was and she would walk up to it and she would break down crying and say I can't do this this isn't what I'm cut out for And she's a motivational speaker that like goes all over the country saying you can do it and as soon as there's something in her way she just she falls apart she melts and she just crumbles because she has a false worldview of manifesting her own universal energy to make things go the right way as soon as she hits a trial that she's not prepared for she falls apart But if you've watched any other episodes of The Amazing Race or anything like that, the people who you can tell are are Christians, when they come up on that challenging thing, they say, oh, I don't know what I'm doing, but Lord Jesus, give me strength. And that's that's what we get to walk in. We're asking God, take that false way away from me, this false way of living that's going to just absolutely crumble when I get there. Take that away from me, and I am going to live in this path, this life that you have established for me that won't falter and fail. Graciously teach, teach me your word. I have, cho- verse 30, I've chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. Again, we see this word for way an- another time where it's saying I have chosen to walk this faithful way. I have chosen after you have removed this false way from me that crumbles as soon as I show up to any challenge, I have chosen to walk this faithful way this way that is firm established that won't falter verse 31 i cling to your testimonies let me not be put to shame i will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart so again we get this this idea of of clinging of cleaving something together i I cling to your testimonies lord let me not be put to shame i run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. So this phrase of when you enlarge my heart is actually saying that I'm able, we are able to run in the way of God. We are able to run in this firm foundation, this idea, this lifestyle that won't crumble before us. We're able to walk that way because the Lord has changed our heart. Because He's come and taken hearts of stones and given us hearts of flesh. He's put the Spirit in us. The Spirit has come and dwelt in us. And now we, we live as different people. We live as stewards of God's mysteries, as royal priests, people who have been set apart, we get to live that because the Lord has changed us. That has to come first. There are plenty of people in academia today that they, they are biblical scholars. They know far more about Scripture than I probably ever will, but the Lord has not changed their heart. In fact, they know things about Scripture to attempt to tear it down, but, then, but their hearts haven't been changed. You can't fully grasp God's word unless the Lord has changed your heart to see it, because it is the heart of the Lord. It's been poured out on pages for us. So he's asking that the Lord would expand our hearts so that we can run in his commandments. These, the word for commandments is actually the shalls and the shall nots. What we you know, think of when we get to the Ten Commandments and other things through Leviticus, of actually you will do this if you are my people, and you will not do this if you are my people giving us these clear instructions, these clear guidelines and parameters of how we ought to live our lives. But when he's talking about growing our heart, he's talking about growing it in a way that we could never do it on our own, growing it and expanding it in a way that only God could, because again, we have these hearts of stone. You know, stones don't grow. (laughs) In fact, they only break and get smaller. But muscles, things of flesh, those can grow. And so we ask the Lord to take this heart of stone from us and give us a heart of flesh. So finally, some of the last little details about Daleth is, um, you know, the Hebrew symbolizes this as a needy or bent over person that Gimel is running to. These two kind of have to go together because of how much um, they're intertwined with one another. But here's something cool about... Dayleth, this little piece right here, this is called the ear, and it's meant to symbolize it's listening for the charitable man bringing them loving kindness, which makes me think of Revelation 3.20, where Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock, and whoever hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and I will dine with him. So Dayleth is this bent-over, impoverished person going tying even into this concept of Bittal is we have to have this humility. We have to be listening for the Lord coming after us. And then we can come back and abide with him. So we can see not only is it going this way, talking about the gospel, but it's going back this way to talk about the way that we grow in our relationship with Christ and our faith grows. And even in Deleth, there, um this corner point here, is actually a reference directly to Bittal in the way that it's written. And again, Bittal leaves a Devakut. So humility leads to abiding with Christ. But when we look at all of this put together, these first four sections, these first 40 or 32 verses, we see God the Father abides on the earth to show loving kindness to impoverished and poor people who can't, have, who can't do anything for themselves. I'm going to say it again. The gospel is not a backup plan. The gospel is not a Hail Mary. It's not God's audible. It's not like we ate the fruit and God said, oh no, what am I going to do now? No, God said from the beginning, I am going to come dwell on the earth among men to show them loving kindness because they can't help themselves. These are things that we get to see when we study God's word, when we muse over God's word, when we meditate on it, when we spend time Studying it, and then we, when we let it impact our lives, these four Hebrew symbols can impact the way that we have conversations. They can be the things that make us excited to come share testimonies and even prayer requests on Sunday mornings or in life groups. We can boast about the things the Lord is doing because God has been bragging about what He's going to do from the moment that He, from before He gave a written language. This was, this was just kind of like a teaser trailer for the Jewish people. And, I mean, we know that they still missed it because they're still waiting for the Messiah. But Jesus came. So, again, I think the biggest thing to take from all of this are probably two things. One, the Lord knew what he was doing all along. And two, when we go back to the concept of when I told you of my ways, you answered me. When your spouse or your children or somebody else comes to you and they say I screwed up and then they just start listing a laundry list of things and you feel like it's never going to end or you've been hurt by somebody else and you feel like the hurt is never going to end you meet them with this gracious response that the Lord gave to you first we love because he first loved us so I hope that you guys can learn to have a hobby in God's word if you don't already Because this is the kind of stuff and and everything in here comes because the Lord makes a hobby of it. This isn't something that has to just be done in study prep. This is something that can be done in your own quiet times and the time that you spend with your spouse talking about God's word. Like get excited about it. Husbands, lead your wives in getting excited about God's word. Wives, encourage and pray for your husbands to get excited about it and be excited about it yourself. Teach your children to be excited about it. Encourage your friends to be excited about it because it's not a big book of boring, outdated rules. That's what the world is trying to tell us today. No, it is rich and it is life-giving. We saw it over and over. It is life-giving and it is the thing that doesn't crumble in front of us when we come up on a challenge that we can't comprehend and understand. Who carries the power? If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe to our content. We are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Married Now What Podcast is a ministry of Evergreen Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and is meant to be a resource for in-depth Bible study for couples striving to build their lives on the truth of God's word. For more information and additional lessons, please visit our website, evergreenbc.org.